I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by my friend Chuck Marone. Welcome back to Upzone. It's great to see you. It's been about a month. <laughs> so apologize to our listeners. We uh, missed one or two episodes towards the end of the year. So we were hoping to have more than more than the number of episodes that we had. And then I got sick. So, but we're back. You did. And then I take a couple of weeks off at the end of the year. So I, you know, it, it worked out. I think I did do a sign off though, like for the podcast, right? I did a episode by myself that was like four minutes yes. long. Yes, you did. But Happy New Year. It's nice to be back. I've missed you. I've missed our conversations. It's nice to talk to you. I'm going to miss next week too. (laughs) I'm from Minnesota. We're having our board retreat next week. And so I'm going to Florida and uh, we'll be gone next Friday. But there's someone else here who will fill in and they'll be good. I'm sure somebody will, will volunteer, you know, less than an hour of their time to come talk to me, hopefully. Everyone loves to talk to you and you're the star of this show anyway. So like, I'm just a bit player, Abby, in your, in your performance. Yes. You're a, a mere, mere visitor on the show at this point. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Well, it's great. Great to have you back. Um, happy, it's nice to be here. happy Thank of, you. for the new year and can't believe it's 2023. And we've got a great article to start out this year. Um, really fascinating, a conversation we've had in the past, but it's really kind of some fresh takes and perspectives here. The article that we're covering was published in Plan Edison by Michael Lewin and is entitled, Is Exclusionary Zoning a Good Thing? So this article is part two of a two-part response to a piece that was published at American Affairs by Judge Glock called Two Cheers for Zoning. So that was published back in like November, um, which as you can tell by the title, it argues the case for zoning. Um, The first response from Plan Edison really has the author arguing against Glock's case, whereas this article in some sense steel mans the case for zoning or dives into some of the more interesting points of the American affairs piece. He talks about these collective action problems as well as how zoning impacts the housing market and kind of digs into this fiscal case for zoning that is made in the American affairs article. So to kind of go over what the thesis of the American Affairs article is, I I just kind of wanted to state a couple of lines from that article that I think were pretty clear. So Judge Glock, who is the author of that, he, he writes, Yimbies are right that a lack of housing is the reason that housing prices in some areas are high. Americans can and should embrace reforms that open these areas for more housing, ameliorate the most stringent local zoning laws and align incentives of local governments towards growth. But we should not embrace a categorical attack on zoning or local governments in general, or the canard that single family zoning is the cause of our housing woes. 
we can demand increased housing without demanding that all housing becomes denser or that all housing decisions get made at the state or federal level while supporting some reforms to allow more housing we do not have to sabotage the one type of government that most Americans will still support, their local government. So that's kind of the high-level thesis, and he goes into a lot of detail throughout the article. I think makes points that people who are you know, following strong towns, lying to strong towns would probably nod their head to, and then other points that they would completely be shaking their heads to. So um, definitely an insightful article. Chuck, you know, from a strong town's perspective, I mean, do you think that these types of conversations are telling the full story? I, I mean, I feel like this is like a conversation that just goes in circles around and around, you know, and, and there's not a lot of consensus on, you know, who should be making the calls with zoning and how we should be dealing with housing supply, whether it should be state level, local level, and how it's true, how zoning is truly impacting cities, whether in a good way or bad way. The way you ask that, prompted me to think of this, this adjacent thought because there's two housing conversations going on today in this country and they have very little overlap and they really don't talk to each other very much. The, the one housing conversation is housing as an investment. And if you turn on CNBC, if you read the financial news, you will get a whole conversation about housing as an investment. And they'll talk about things that investors talk about, about price signals, about momentum, about interest rates, and, and all of these things that, that they look at through a financial lens that affects housing prices. They never talk about zoning. They never talk about planning. They never talk about uh, con- you know any of these things. They might talk about construction costs and labor costs, but they're never talking about the things that the other side of the housing conversation obsesses about, which is the the zoning and the regulations and the government part of it and developers and the fight between YIMBY and NIMBY. It feels like what both of them, I'm going to say get wrong, but I think just have as a failed premise. Like they they don't think about it a lot. It's, It's just a given. I think what they're both taking as a given is that housing is some static thing. Housing is some thing that, that you know, exists in a stasis. In, in Strong Towns, in my first book, I talk about the underlying assumption of the post-war American development pattern being permanent affluence. If you build a neighborhood and you build it all at once to a finished state, you assume that the people who live in that neighborhood are going to be able to sustain it, take care of it, pay exorbitant fees to fix the roof and fix the siding and maintain and, and, and be able to do that without getting any additional value out of it. In other words, historically, you would see neighborhoods transform over time, become thicker, become denser, be, add more units, what have you, largely because people were struggling to maintain them and you needed to actually build wealth in order to continue to occupy that neighborhood. Zoning puts that in stasis. And what you see in this debate between Judge Glock, which by the way, there's a lot of dad jokes there. Like the guy's name is actually Judge Locke, which my first thought immediately, because I am a dad, was what if what if he married my judge from the uh 
from the Yankees, would he then be Judge Judge? Like that would be hilarious. <laughs> when I start reading this Judge Glock, I'm like, is this guy like in the judiciary branch? And no, that's just that's just the name. So like I'm good, I'm good with it. The debate between him and Michael, who's a really nice guy, like I've met him, I like him. Both of them are assuming that the zoning stasis model is a viable model. And I think just reality intervenes and says, one of the reasons why this system doesn't work is because we're treating it as if it's static and it's actually dynamic. The day you build a new subdivision, it starts to decline. The forces of entropy start to rear their head. Things start to fall apart. Things start to not work. And when your entire framework and then the debate you have about the framework all assumes that everything is just stasis and will remain that way, I, I think you, you wind up with what we have here, which is a theoretical debate, very divorced from reality. And you end up with policies that are, again, very divorced from reality. And when you attach that to a financial system that is a very definition of being divorced from reality, you wind up with housing that is insane. And I, I, I kind of feel like this debate personifies that, even though I think it's smart and I agree with major parts of it. Yeah, I, something that I thought was interesting about the Judge Glock kind of perspective on this. I mean, he doesn't um, like hold any punches when it comes to his perspective about like exclusionary zoning basically being a good thing. That's the point. Like that's, you know, creates expectations. And he calls it like a fiscally sustainable approach to, I guess, managing cities basically saying that like economics have shown that zoning ensures fiscal independence of local governments and encourages more payments for public goods. I mean, his argument is basically that that affluent residents won't pay as many taxes if non-affluent residents are living in their community. Um, he actually goes as far as to call it like a, I think he uses the word like freeloader situation. And he actually coins this term fiscal zoning. At least I think he's coining it because I've never heard of that before. Whereas more economically stable cities, they zone to attract this mix of property taxes where poorer cities are really positioned to embrace new development for businesses and residents since they don't mind an increase in congestion and crowding as much as wealthy areas. And they also would benefit from the increased uh, fiscal revenues. So really, I found that to be kind of the position in his article that I was like shaking my head to because it's like, I mean, he's basically arguing that it's just better for rich people to move to poor areas than for poor areas to move to rich areas and disturb their like kind of perfect tax balance that's going on there. And that exclusion is basically a good thing because it creates this level of stability. And Plan Edison, of course, um, argues that they're they're missing this reality that poor suburbs might actually want development, you know, it's not all about urban areas necessarily and that retrofitting, you know, suburban shopping centers and adding density and incremental development and other adaptations could actually be beneficial 
two suburbs, but you know, the original article seems to be really allergic to kind of any change to the suburban areas. It's actually kind of yucky. Like I, the, yeah. like, it was a little like <laughs> sickening to me. I'm like, Ooh, that's disgusting. Yeah. Like I said, he, he says some things in the article that you're nodding your head to like, okay, that makes sense. And then he goes right out <laughs> and says it. Yeah. It is pretty yucky. Let me say it in a different way. Because again, we get back to this static dynamic thing. What happens when you have this vision of static neighborhoods is the thing that changes then are the people, right? So what happens is that a poor neighborhood is occupied by poor people. Let's just go ahead and and take this debate to the next level. Poor neighborhoods are occupied by lesser people, people who are less concerned with maintaining their place and less able to take care of their place and less, less, less. And I, I find that a disgusting argument. I find that that wrong because what, what happens is that we impose a set of beliefs and views on the quality of people because we assume that the neighborhood doesn't change, just the people change. And the reality is, is that every neighborhood that they would call a poor neighborhood or a, a a struggling neighborhood, or I can't remember the exact word that Judge Glock uses, but it was, you know, these neighborhoods that are in need of more housing and more density and would welcome the added congestion and would welcome the, all this, where the affluent neighborhood won't. Those are all neighborhoods that 50 years ago used to be affluent neighborhoods. I mean, that, that that's the thing that I think is ignored in this whole thing is that that used to be the affluent neighborhood. And then atrophy took place over time. Entropy rears its head. Places start to fall apart. There's no natural renewal mechanism. It's locked in stasis by zoning. And so what happens is that a new affluent neighborhood is built and the affluent people flee to that neighborhood. And this neighborhood locked in amber just starts its long, slow descent until we can come in in our heroic way and say, well, this is a place that now can have change, now can have dynamism. This is a place that now uh, that it's failed can be subjected. And, and, and let me say it in the way that I feel like the vibe of this article is, this is a place now that it has people who have failed and, and is in a neighborhood where the people will not fight back because they're not going to be organized in that way. Now we can go in as, as better people and rejuvenate this neighborhood through the types of schemes that people want to do with more zoning and more density and da, 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 da. And I find the whole argument to have some glimmers of like mechanistic truth to it with this huge, underneath this huge overlay, an umbrella of just a dysfunctional view an incorrect view of what zoning is and who humans are and how these systems operate. And it winds up to be a very yucky, and I think that's like the word that comes to my mind, like a very yucky argument. Because instead of debating whether we want neighborhoods that are dynamic or neighborhoods that are static, we wind up debating whether people are good or not or worthy or not or should tolerate change while others uh, resist it or not. Right, exactly. And I think the other thing that kind of had me, I guess, uh, shaking my head a little bit is the argument that there's like 
it's like the article talks about this emphasis on supply side of zoning, where zoning is perceived as like basically being a top-down imposition that um, is directed by a handful of policymakers that don't represent the people. And what Judge Glock does in the American Affairs article is that he argues against that, saying that um, there's a demand side story of zoning and that zoning is really this like emergent, bottom-up kind of thing that you know historically has has emerged because of people at the local level rather than from the top down and that therefore a rejection of zoning as a tool entails a rejection of what people are broadly demanding and of what the author is perceiving to be a bottom-up emergence in that uh, American Affairs article. And one of the quotes that he has is that if zoning is a mistake, then why are so many people moving to places that are making that mistake? Zoning is common because people want it. Therefore, it is good. Kind of wanted to get your response to that statement. Well, it comes to a conclusion that I think has you're able to defend in some ways, but it does it through this just scaffolding that is completely backward. First of all, show me the places that don't have zoning. And I mean, I can look around here and say in, in central Minnesota, every city has zoning, every county has zoning, every region has zoning. There's one area here that's called unorganized territory that has county level zoning instead of local zoning. But it's not like people are moving to zoning because they love zoning. Um, like it's like people love single family homes. Show me the other options in the marketplace. For most people, there are none. It's ninety five percent of what we have. Uh, everybody loves cars, right? Everyone likes to drive everywhere. Well, show me the neighborhood where you don't have to drive. Those arguments to me always fall flat, right? There's this other side of it that people embrace zoning, and I do think that there is a bit of truth to that. But I don't think it's because they love the benefits that zoning provides. I think what it is, is that once you enter a neighborhood, at whatever point you enter the neighborhood, if, if it is a suburban neighborhood or a post-World War II neighborhood, what you are doing is you are entering a neighborhood at the peak of that neighborhood. And the neighborhood from the point you enter will decline into the future. And so whether you're the first one to buy in or whether you buy in a decade later or two decades later or four decades later, the neighborhood was built all at once. It was built to its like perfect finished state. And then it starts to decline and there's no mechanism to renew it. That's zoning prevents that. And so what zoning then becomes is this tool to, in a sense, slow the rate of decline. And that's what I see zoning used at for the most part. It's it's used as a way to prevent change because the type of change that we get is most associated with decline and atrophy. That's not an embrace of zoning as a tool to build great places. That's embrace embracing zoning as a defensive tool to halt, you know, to me, the negative aspects of zoning for the most part. You know, it, it, there's a there's a sad irony to it, right? And you know, in the Plan Edison article, Michael kind of makes this argument around this collective action problem that 
that cities face where individual municipalities, what's good for them is not necessarily good for the region as a whole. So you have a situation, many cities have a situation where they're kind of broken up into lots of little pieces at the regional level. And each of them are taking on this defensive mechanism that is zoning or using zoning in a way that is defensive to limit change, limit housing supply, defend against real or perceived negative externalities that are associated with growth, and basically creating these broader regional impacts and ripple effects. If you abolish zoning in one municipality or were to just kind of open it up in one municipality, it's unclear if that would have you know, much of a regional impact, right? I mean, it's like, so I think that that's why people kind of take this state preemption perspective. But, you know, when you get down to the regional level there, it seems like there is a regional conversation to be had. There's something just horribly wrong about that analysis that that really drives me, it really drives me crazy. It's this collective action problem, right? And the underlying assumption of the collective action problem is that if we have affluent neighborhoods, the affluent neighborhoods are doing really well. They are, and they're good for the community because they pay a lot of taxes and they, they generate a lot of wealth and they, those people are, you know, I'm using air quotes now, better uh, for the community than people in poor neighborhoods. And one of the things that we've done over and over and over again at Strong Towns is shown how especially if those are rather new neighborhoods out on the edge, they tend to uh, cash flow really well today, but they are a massive financial drag on the community. They actually have way more costs associated with them than they create benefits. So yes, this is occupied by a very wealthy person, or yes, this is a brand new Walmart paying a lot of taxes. But if you look at the amount of the collective commitment to that property, it's way disproportionate to the actual revenue that the community gets in. What area isn't like that? Generally, it is the pre-Great Depression neighborhoods that tend to be more run down, tend to be occupied by poorer people, tend to be inhabited at a, a lower financial burn rate. If you are a city if you are a region, if you're, you know, writing one of these articles, the, the base belief that you tend to have is the idea that if we could just get more rich neighborhoods and more wealthy neighborhoods, that we could somehow do really well and maybe go help the poor neighborhoods. But the financial reality on the ground is that the poor neighborhoods are actually cash flow positive and they are subsidizing the wealthy neighborhoods in the community in a way that is grotesque. It's almost a parasitic relationship where the affluent neighborhoods come in, are built, are in a sense facilitated through zoning, protected by zoning from you know slowing down their decline, and then look over at the other side of town at the poor neighborhoods and say, you're the problem, when those poor neighborhoods are the ones that are actually cash flow positive. They're the ones that even with poor people can exist almost indefinitely on their own and would be better off without the affluent neighborhood. I, I struggle with this because the 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 again the base case here that the argument is the low layer that the argument is based on is just fundamentally wrong. It's just a, a wrong premise of how these communities are actually organized. 
if we go to Kansas City, you know, I, I look at your place and I feel like the the city government for sure and, you know, most of the people in the community would believe that that new subdivision out on the edge is disproportionately paying its way for the community. They're, you know, creating more tax revenue and more jobs and more affluent people and it's all great. And the reality is, is that neighborhoods like yours are the ones bearing the burden. Your, your neighborhood is subsidizing that other neighborhood over the long term. That neighborhood has built-in decline, built-in stasis. It's going to fail. And, you know, th this whole argument of should we build more of these places just completely ignores that fact. Yeah. And that kind of brings me to, I think, what was my favorite headline or subheading in the original article from American Affairs to share with you was that, you know, this big bold letters, sprawling cities are affordable cities. And Oh my gosh, I saw that. <laughs> he makes the case basically saying that sprawling American cities with extensive single family zoning have some of the most affordable housing prices on earth and that even globally more sprawling and low density countrysides had almost no increase in their housing price to income ratios in the past two decades while the least sprawling kind of urban centers saw price housing price to income ratios climb by up to 40% in the same period. So that actually made me think of Daniel's article that he put out this week that that's talking about kind of filtering of existing housing stock and, you know, changes in the value of existing housing stock, despite no, you know, changes to them physically or even decline uh, in those units physically that we're seeing in more urbanized areas. Um, but, you know, to this point about sprawling areas being more affordable housing stock, there's so much to unpack there in terms of like how you even run that analysis and and make that case from like a data perspective. But there's also that fundamental kind of missing piece, which is the cost of supporting that from a infrastructure perspective, which is something that is, you know, never accounted for in that kind of discussion. It's really just looking at the cost of housing in that condition, whatever, however, the, you know, this particular analysis defines that condition. It, it's also the snapshot, right? Because you're saying businesses that are on the verge of bankruptcy uh, sell their products more affordably than businesses that are you know, not. And it's like, yeah, that, that is true. And cities that have made a lot of really bad financial investments um, and are desperate for growth and are just, you know, going for broke are more affordable. And, and that is true. It might take them uh, a few more decades to actually have to recognize those problems. Uh, but by that point, they become the poor cities. And then we look at them and say, well, now they're occupied by poor people. And so we need some type of program to densify them and have them take all the new traffic and have them be the place where we grow so we can protect these other places that look how affordable and great they are. It is, what was the quote? It's not even wrong. Again, you, you're starting with the incorrect model and you're using that incorrect model to reach conclusions that are just wrong. I think it would really help people who are deep, deep into zoning and think that 
zoning is either great or is horrible or can cure cancer or solve world, you know, peace or the Ukraine Russia conflict. There's people who just like love, love, love zoning. And there's other people who just hate it, just like loathe it and think it's the, the root of all evil. I feel like those people should take a year and this will be painful. It won't be fun, but watch CNBC or read every financial report you can about housing as a financial product, because you'll start to recognize that there's a whole other conversation about housing. It's like he, it will open your eyes to the fact that housing as this like financial product and financial uh, commodity is just treated way differently. And I think, you know, this kind of myopic notion that somehow building static communities and, and debating the merits of one zoning approach or the other is the big market maker here. I think you'll, that will be torn away really quickly and you'll start to develop an appreciation for the fact that these are dynamic systems. And the market part is dynamic, right? Like, I think that's what the investors get is the investors get that like investment markets are dynamic. They're complex. They have feedback loops. They change. They don't understand how housing works. They don't understand zoning. They don't, they don't get that part of it, but they understand markets. And I think what these zoning people don't get is they don't understand the dynamic nature of things. And so they assume in like this arrogant hubris kind of way, a certain level of stasis that just doesn't exist. And if they could actually grasp the dynamism, they could, I, I think they could see that there's a lot of nuance in zoning that needs to happen to allow neighborhoods to breathe and grow and flex and change and be dynamic. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks for that, Chuck. Before we- It's me being angry. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. And I look forward to more conversations about oh. housing as it, it seems to be a big topic. And I'd love to get Daniel on too to maybe start talking about this market side of things as well. Before we conclude today, though, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we've been up to these days, anything we've been watching, reading, listening to. Um, so Chuck, what have you been up to? Over the break, I did a lot of books, right? Like I do all my fiction at Christmas time. And so I've got like five books that I read. There's one called Saturn Run, by John Sanford. John Sanford writes uh, crime novels. He's a Minnesota author. They're kind of fun for me to read because you'll talk about like driving down I-35W and I'm like, oh, I know I-35W. He wrote a book and he partnered with someone to write this book about basically this, this alien species that showed up at Saturn and they sent a ship out to rendezvous and figure out what was going on. And the premise seemed a little bit like out there for him. And even at the beginning seemed a little cheesy. Like, can he really pull this off? I got into it. It was a good book. It was kind of fun. He did a really great, great job with it. He's good at writing dialogue and he's good at writing characters in a flip page kind of novel way, right? Like not like a deep character development, but in a, a page turner kind of way. And this was just outside of his normal scope of writing. Saturn run, I found it to be really fun. And so it was one of those books. I always feel like a good fiction book is one where like a week or two later, I still come up with like a nugget from it that was just kind of, you know, a takeaway or interesting. And I've had quite a few with this one. So I just liked it. It was fun. 
So that's great. I I love that. I forget that you always um, read all your fiction specifically in December. And I love that. I actually, so I took a couple of weeks off, which was really nice. And I binged a show, which I haven't done in a really long time. Not proud of it, but I watched all of Succession. I'm not sure if you know what that is. No, I don't. It's kind of funny. It kind of has arrested development vibes, a little bit of like kind of dark humor and almost a little bit of like office humor as well. It's a, it's a weird mix of like comedic styles, I think, from the different characters. But it's basically about this big uh, media conglomerate that's owned by one family with the dad who's the head of it. And the, he's looking to retire and he has four kids and each of them kind of expect to be his his successor and so it kind of goes through this like phase where they think he's gonna leave and they're kind of playing games with each other to try to take over this company it's actually really i found it to be really really funny i know it's kind of a drama but i thought it was more of like a comedy than it was a drama so yeah highly recommend it i i enjoyed watching it i watched it pretty quickly 29 episodes. That's a, that's, that's it's a lot. That's long, enough, that's long enough to capture your time, but, but uh-huh. not so much that it's overwhelming, right? It's not like there's eight seasons and, you know, no. or something like that. No, yeah. there's three seasons and, um, yeah, 29 episodes. So that's like 29 hours over two weeks. So that's a, that's a good amount of time. Good night amount of oh. evenings. So you and I are the, uh, the alien, um, you know, adjacent people. Yeah. <laughs> We're in that space kind of that right. space. Right. So I had um Netflix like kept telling me, You're really gonna like this show, Ancient Apocalypse. Like you're really gonna like it. You're really gonna like it. You're really gonna like it. And I was like, I'm not gonna watch it. I'm not gonna watch it. I'm not gonna watch it. It's like clickbait. <laughs> yeah. And then I watched it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this was such a good show. And it's funny because there've been all these articles written that I've seen now. Cause you know how, like when you watch something on Netflix, like Google spies on you and knows. So like it starts feeding you, um, here's an article about this and here's an article about this. And the guy who's like the center of this thing, guy called Graham Hancock, I think is his name, like super controversial in archeology. span And he's a quack. He's a nut job. He doesn't know what he's talking about all this. Stuff. I'll tell you what's interesting to me. And I'm, I'm an armchair of this. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm willing to accept that there's a lot of people who study this who know more than me. But I, I read this book years ago. It was a bi- biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And the thing that I – mean, Leonardo da Vinci is fascinating. And it was a great book. And it was really interesting. And I wanted to know more about da Vinci. And I, I thought it was great. But the thing that stuck with me about that book is the very first page had a list of the smartest people who have ever lived. Here's the smartest people who have ever lived. And Einstein is on that list and uh, Galileo and Newton. And, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of people who we don't know about who were smarter than them, but they're the smartest people that, that we know about, right? And it had this list. And I think it went from like 10 to one. So it was like you read it in order. And number two was Leonardo da Vinci. And this is a book about Leonardo da Vinci. And they're like, they put him at number two. Guess what number one was? It just said, whoever built the pyramids. Oh. (laughs) And that has stuck with me so much because 
you look at the the pyramids in Giza as being, and you know, there's pyramids around the world too. You look at these pyramids as being this like astounding achievement, even today. And you're like, how in the world did anyone build these things? And there's never really been in my mind like an acceptable explanation as to what I mean, this is why we entertain theories of aliens and what have you, because like it really, it, it baffles us. It's beyond uh, belief. I'm not saying that ancient apocalypse is like the answer, uh, but it's another one of these like <laughs> yeah. hypotheses put forward that is really interesting to ponder. Was there a human civilization that had reached a certain apex, that had built certain things that then was destroyed in an apocalypse of, you know... Uh, asteroids and melting ice and what have you, and the remnants of humans picked up the pieces and went on, and and that's who we're descended from today. I think that's a really interesting thought. Yeah, experiment. we like to think that we are the most advanced we've ever been. Right, we're the most present that the present has ever been. Um, sounds like that's a new place for your next Strongtown staff retreat. Go to Maybe the pyramids. That, Go to the pyramids. I'll, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I, I thought I wound up thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. The one thing we do know about ancient civilizations, if they were like advanced, is that they hadn't figured out fossil fuels yet. And we know that because we're the ones who found them and started using them, right? So like if, if they had figured this out, they would not have been there for us. So whatever they did to build the pyramids did not involve using machines with oil and coal and gas and refineries and things like that. But what did they do? I don't know. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting. That would suggest that we're missing something. So, well, and I don't know. Something the, amazing. The sad, thing about, the sad thing about the show is that it had all the dramatic things of like the crazy shows, right? So it would be like, you know, there's this pyramid, and then what did they find underneath it? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, da, da, da. Yeah. <laughs> why do you have to have the drama music? Why can't you just tell me? Like, why do you have to make it so, like, false tension? But anyway, if you could get through that, it's actually kind of an interesting premise. And sure, the guy might be wacky, but you know what? Everybody who's ultimately had, like, really good ideas has a tinge of wackiness to them, and I, I that's never scared me off. Yeah, I love it. I'll watch it. Sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chuck. Well, I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. We can end it there. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Take care.